Welcome to Halt the Harm podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Clover. And today I am sharing a recorded webinar with Eliza Griswold, the author of Amity and Prosperity. This webinar took place in September of 2018, around the time that Eliza was on a book tour for her book, Amity and Prosperity. In this book, the prize-winning poet and journalist, Eliza Griswold, tells the story of the energy boom's impact on a small town at the edge of Appalachia and one woman's transformation from a struggling single parent to an unlikely activist. This webinar was a chance to connect with Eliza amidst her national book tour to discuss her journalism experience and bring questions. So in this recording, you can hear Eliza present about her book. And then toward the end, I ask a couple of the questions that came in from the hundred or so people who were attending this webinar and Eliza's responses to those questions. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Halt the Harm podcast. And to watch the video of this webinar, visit haltheharm.net slash webinars. The webinar. Welcome, Eliza. It's great to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Ryan and Marty, for having me. I know that you're very busy and that you're also um, doing uh, a number of book events, some of which are, are in regions where some people who are actually logged in now will be able to to attend them as well. So tell us a, a bit about the book and and then I'm going to start compiling some questions in the question area below. Great. Okay, excellent. Um, so this book began sort of unusually. I was traveling in Nigeria um, and I was in rural Nigeria where a bridge collapsed and a couple of people had died when the bridge collapsed. And it was a couple of weeks after I-35W had collapsed in Minneapolis and 13 people had been killed. And there was something about that experience that made me think what I thought for a while as a, you know, most of my background as a journalist is in being a foreign correspondent and in covering conflicts in Africa and Asia. But I thought at that point, it's really time to come home. It's really time to come home and look at the social ills plaguing America and, and the systemic failures uh, that we are facing and how we might do better. I thought at first I was going to write about bridges crumbling bridges, structurally deficient bridges. And so I looked for the highest number of bad bridges in America, and they were in southwestern Pennsylvania. And I headed out to Pittsburgh and started looking at bridges and, you know, realizing that as important as the story of crumbling infrastructure is, my heart wasn't in it. And I did meet remarkable people who were working on issues of water quality around locks and levees and reservoirs. And many of them worked with the Army Corps of Engineers in Pittsburgh. One in particular, a woman named Rose Riley, who just reminds me of a modern day Rachel Carson. She's amazing. Um, one day she gave me a call and she said she was going down to Morgantown, West Virginia, and she was going to go attend a meeting of concerned citizens who lived in a particular watershed that was impacted by this new oil and gas boom. And did I want to go talk to people who were living this experience of what it meant, you know, to really live in the midst of, of massive infrastructural growth, whether it's a well site or a pipeline or a road failure. And, you know, I was starting to hear stories of organic dairy farmers who couldn't afford their small farms because they couldn't get their milk out along the rutted roads that were a mess from 
truck traffic. This is 2011, so it's fairly early in the boom. So Rose put me in her car and she drove me down from Pittsburgh, down to Morgantown, West Virginia, to the airport. Because, of course, one of the symptoms really here of public poverty is people had nowhere to gather. They had nowhere to publicly meet. So they, they booked the airport. So we went to the airport and it was in the airport where I first heard Stacy Haney, a single mom and a nurse in Washington County who worked at the local hospital, stand up and tell her story. It was the first time she'd ever spoken in public. She was extremely nervous. Um, she hadn't spoken in public since she'd been Betsy Ross in her third grade play. So she was nervous for several reasons. Um, but one of the reasons was that her children and, and she had benzene and toluene in their bodies. And they, she had, she knew this. Testing had shown this. Her son had arsenic poisoning. And when these test results had come back, they were suffering these mysterious illnesses. She knew there was a well site nearby. She didn't know much about it. She had called the company and the company had begun to supply her and her family water. And she was worried that if she spoke out in public about what was happening and her sicknesses, she was feared that the company would punish her and take the water away. What she discovered, this is March 2011, that for more than a year, just about a quarter of a mile from her farm, there was an eight-acre frack pond um, that dwarfed. She lives on an eight-acre farm, and the, the pond itself ranged from, you know, four to eight acres. And it was when she finally saw it, her daughter actually found the pond on Google Earth one day uh, when she was in seventh grade computer class. When she finally saw it, it really dwarfed it really dwarfed her house. And it turned out that the pond was leaking. As we know, I, with you guys on the on the line, some of you are going to have very sophisticated, sophisticated understandings of where this industrial process breaks down. And some may have other questions. So I'm just going to, in very broad strokes, say the problems that they could identify early on that the DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection, also had identified but not told them. The pond was leaking. Uh, it was leaking industrial uh, carcinogenic waste into, into the hillside a quarter of a mile above their house. It was also off-gassing dangerous amounts of hydrogen sulfide because the pond had essentially gone septic. And these were just the early failures that Stacy wasn't able to substantiate until she and her neighbors uh, got a husband and wife, an amazing husband and wife legal team involved, John and Kendra Smith. When John and Kendra, they were pro-drilling. They were, their small firm was making, making a healthy income from helping people negotiate leases. They, their office is still in the shadow uh, in South Point, which will be familiar to some of you, which is the, really the oil and gas capital of Appalachia. Um, and when John and Kendra got involved, Kendra, who is a corporate defense attorney uh, who usually does exposure cases defending railroads, these guys decided for the first time to switch sides. And they took on they took on the company that was involved in what was going on on that hillside. But they also took on both the state for its its failure to regulate and to protect um, their clients. And eventually they took on the federal government as well. Part of the most exciting book, part of, the, of reporting this book over seven dismal years of what we call immersion reporting. So really, really following people's lives over days and months and weeks and years. Um, 
one of the high points for me in the reporting was when Stacy and the Smiths actually won in the state Supreme Court, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. Um, they won a right to block a new drilling law because they were able to give teeth for the first time to an environment, environmental amendment in the Pennsylvania Constitution. Because the Pennsylvania Constitution guarantees its citizens in the Bill of Rights Bill of Rights, the right to clean air and pure water. And that had been on the book since the 70s. Largely, it had actually come out of Rachel Carson's work and the environmental movement, uh, but it was largely decorative. It was, it was a noble statement, but it didn't have any practical legal teeth. And this case that the Smiths and, and Stacey and, and others brought before the, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court was the first to give that Amendment teeth. And, and I'll just end by saying what was so exciting about that was that it wasn't a highly polarized left versus right debate in any way. In fact, it was a the the chief justice of, of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court at that time was a conservative Republican named Ron Castile of Vietnam that very conservative who believed in protecting the rights of Pennsylvania citizens and pushing back against what he saw as corporate overreach. And so that was a very exciting moment. And I think in the mo- in, in the litany of horrors that happens to these people and drives them off farmland that had been in their family for a century, this is really the hopeful piece and a piece for activists in looking how to move forward and, and look toward blocking law uh, that works against them in local communities. So I think with that, um, I will open it up maybe to an initial round of questions and we can see, please don't, if you haven't read the book, that's perfectly fine. Um, and also full disclosure, I'm beginning to work on pipeline issues, as some of you know, um, and reporting on them for The New Yorker. So I'll be looking forward to any comments you might have of, oh, Eliza, you should see this. You should talk to this person. Uh, by the end of the hour, we should have time to do some of that as well. So I'm sure that it's a give and take and a discussion that brings you guys in as well. Okay. Thanks, Eliza, for for getting things started. And for anybody who wants to bring a question into the conversation, there's a button right there. Clive says, looking forward to reading the book. However, I'm guessing that the ne- negligent gas drill restoring frack water in lined or even unlined open ponds that leaked, and I hope to God that storage method is no longer being used. Was that the case here, or does it go beyond that? It goes beyond that. So you mean... And that's a uh, late ad. Just saw that 1.1 million fine against EQT was upheld for a leaking wastewater pond. Please tell me that sort of thing is no longer happening. That is happening. Um, that is absolutely happening. So what happened, one of the the successes that the that the lawyers had in this case was in bringing so much pressure against the driller um, over these leaking ponds, over the one that was leaking next to Stacy and her family, they were able to bring enough heat on the DEP that the DEP fined the driller um, the largest, I think it was $4.1 million, uh, was the largest fine to date and ordered the closing of eight, it was eight separate ponds um, in the county, only in the county. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was extraordinary. Every pond that, that the these guys could document what was happening, every pond was leaking. And, it, and the DP had been issuing notices of violation on those leaking ponds for years, which meant they knew they leaked also. 
And what happened in the course of one of the reasons, the real advantages in this book is that I had public records, of course, court documents that included, you know, back and forth emails that were public um, as a result of these legal cases where you'd have an oil and gas worker saying, we all know these ponds leak. I mean, this was no secret. So as of the last of my reporting, there were still two open, still two of these waste ponds um, in operation by this one driller in Washington County itself. I myself saw that EQT headline and I haven't looked closely enough to know where exactly that is. But yeah, the geology, and I'm sure some some listeners will certainly know this, the geology of Pennsylvania is such that it's different. It's it's tricky and it doesn't allow for deep injection wells, which of course, as we well know, have their own problems, including with causing earthquakes. Um, but these, these, these impoundments sit on the surface in Pennsylvania and, and there really has been no legislation outlawing them. And, and that would be a major step forward to say, you know what, these are simply too dangerous. Great, thank you, Liza. Yeah. Um, that kind of ties into a question with 100,000 new wells planned, what is your back of the envelope estimate of communities that are going to be harmed in the same way? That's a calculation that I haven't done. I, I, I wouldn't know. I'd have to look at maps and see how many communities. And, and I'm not sure that I could answer that in any effective way. Rather than estimate the number of, company, of, com, of communities that are going to be affected, it might be more helpful to look at what those effects might be. And in doing so, there's there we can we have plenty of evidence now to look at the impact. You know, there's a lot of talk, even let's stay out of some the more contested, you know, does it do the chemicals sicken people or not? Let's just stay in the pure basic use of roads, the pure infrastructure of it with roads, you know, as I'm sure. So the book follows people who have been deeply whose lives they would say have been ruined by their exposure to drilling. And it also follows neighbors who have made hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars off of leases and still support drilling. And what some of the people who support drilling would say in communities, and I'm sure you guys have heard this, is that the quality of the roads goes up exponentially when drillers come to town because they pave dirt roads that are so rutted. They, in order to use the roads themselves, they have to put them in much better quality. This is a form of public poverty, though, because what 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 these companies are doing is passing their costs on to the public structure. We might at one a phrase I use sometimes is they're privatizing the profit and they're socializing the cost, um, both in the form of dirty water, dirty air and also roads, because they do bond the roads that they use, saying we will repair them. But the but the bond doesn't cover the cost of repair. And it's really I think a lot of the solution to regulation when we're dealing with the fact in places where fracking is happening is to look at that kind of non-negotiable uh, fine print where people on both sides of the aisle can both say, oh, no, 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 they have to pay for our roads. Let's do the math and make sure that they can ensure that. Um, and Karen just said in the chat, the DEP is approving a lot of injection wells in Pennsylvania, Penn State, DEP, and DCNR have created a map site monitor seismic activity in anticipation that will have earthquakes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's beyond startling. And the, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, most listeners will know 
maybe not, but that earthquakes are already happening in Pennsylvania because of fracking itself, not even the injection wells. And it just goes to, I mean, now the problem is so vast with the, with, with the federal government rolling back, you know, federal regulation and selling off lands as well, that it's hard to keep fighting. It's hard to think, how can we address what's going on in any meaningful way? Um, But, you know, I think what I would just say is where I've seen people really have successes, it's on the local level. It's, it's either moratoriums or different kind of legal action protecting themselves or, you know, finding attorneys who are willing to, to take fights all the way up to both a, a county and then a, a, if it's possible, if the, if the state will hear at a state level. And there are victories there. And those are meaningful precedents to set. We have a question from Christine. It says, the problem of non-disclosure agreements has not received much much or any attention in reporting on fracking, but if the public understood how many families have had to settle in order to survive, do you think public sentiment against the industry would shift? Do you know if anyone is counting numbers of people who have been harmed but have signed agreements and cannot speak out? Christine, I don't want to get into this too much um, for the reasons that I'll tell you. Um, wh- First of all, I think this is I think this is one of the most central issues of the entire that entire question of privatizing profit and socializing cost is gagging people. Right. Um, I have met people who are not able to talk to me in the dozens uh, affected not just by, you know, the gas industry, but by coal um, and other extractive industries in exactly as you're saying. Um, and they're forced to settle. And people, you know, I'll have people say to me all the time who aren't very familiar with extractive industry, well, why would they, why would they sign that? You know, you know, the cost of a roof, you're not going to replace, you're going to live without a roof, you know, and I do think one of the problems here is that those who know very little about extraction, you know, I would say I live in New York City, people who are living in New York City, often they put the onus on the people signing the leases themselves, the people signing NDAs saying, well, why should they, they shouldn't do that. When in fact, again, it's part of a systemic problem that allows NDAs to be abused. I mean, it's really astounding to me. Um, so it is something that, you know, I, I may start doing counting myself. I've talked to a local journalist who's interested in doing exactly that. It's tricky because what you don't want to do, and this is how these companies have people in such a hard place, you don't want to endanger people, right, of getting accused of violating their NDA. Um, and companies have such a far legal reach. It's a tricky one, but it's certainly it's, it's certainly an essential issue to understanding how public opinion the the answer do I think public opinion would change? I don't know. I mean, how many more stories do we need of people whose lives are ruined by extraction to do it differently? It's convenient not to pay attention. And I don't know if a number of stories, um, if a greater number of stories would help lead to the political will that are required for action. A question from Marty here says, many of us were pained as we read that Stacy suffered so long alone. We've dedicated our careers and volunteer time to helping people who are impacted. Any sense about the people who did get through? What is the most effective way our community can be approachable to landowners? Oh, that's great. People, uh, I'm a little bit confused about any sense of the people who did get through where? Like 
how, did get through to reaching her? Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's where the question's coming from. Kind of like in the in the line of thinking about how in your book you really explored some of the dynamics of and the cultural yeah. dynamics of like why there are some divides between organizations yeah. that are doing advocacy around environmental issues and and people who are really impacted. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, for me, one that one of the things that made Stacy such a compelling person to me and such a compelling person to write about in regard to this issue is that she didn't want to be written about. I mean, she she was willing to cooperate because she felt that it was her duty to essentially chronicle what had happened to her and her family over time. But she was not a press. She wasn't looking for press. And mm-hmm. as comes through the book, you know, in living color, she's an unlikely activist. You know, most of her family voted for Trump. The in, in, opposing be the word environmentalist is a dirty word in, in most yeah. of Washington yeah. County because it's associated with a political position rather than actual practical action. So how did, who did get through to her? Um, uh, the Southwest um, PA Environmental Health Project, uh, Raina Ripple, uh, was able to, you know, at least document um, and speak to Stacy about what was going on. She did have some contact with different university professors. She was open to it if people were able to reach her and know about her. But that was the curious tension, right, because she was wary about being too known. And she was she was wary about being used. You know, I think actually when I really think about it, just thinking about it now, that's the term for what we would use, right? She did not want to be the poster girl of some campaign against fracking. You know, I have seen environmental organizations operating locally in both Washington and even the more rural Greene County and where they have real success. Like I'm thinking, for example, of Veronica Coptis at the Center for Coalfield Justice, who I wrote about last year in The New Yorker, and she straddles ide- she straddles ideology. I mean, she's big on the Second Amendment, you know, but she blah, blah, blah. She doesn't fit any easy categories. And I think to some degree, what she's always looking for, Marty, what she's always looking for are organizations who are willing to come out, come out and show up for her events. So like she's out there in Greene County, you know, I mean, her office is in Washington County. So it's going to take an hour from Pittsburgh to get to, you know, a CCJ event. Um, But she can't get activists to come out. Um, from Pittsburgh. And so one way that I think it could just be practically much more easy is to have local partners with really grassroots organizations and to show up on a regular basis. Because as you know far better than I do, you guys who work as activists in this space, it is all about trust and being known. And that takes having local feet on the ground. Um, So, you know, obviously we see that industries they've done it with me. They, this is their, their first tactic is to try to paint whoever is a critic as an outsider, right? That's the first go for that. They're an outsider because they know that plays well to the, to their, to their constituency, to the communities. So work against the fact that, that, so don't be an outsider. So show up regularly at CCJ and host an event at the strawberry center in Washington with CCJ and work on those local partnerships by actually having a a face and a presence there showing up. And I think that that would go a long way toward 
that that slur of outsider uh, toward countermanding that because it's like no i i go to popcorn willie i sat next to you yesterday um i think for me as a journalist that that showing up and showing up and showing up um was ultimately what helped break down some of those walls thank you you mentioned the industry a little bit engaging and yeah. The question here is, can you talk a bit about the way the industry has engaged with you? Your book is out now. You're telling a story that they do not want public. Have you experienced mm-hmm. any pressure? I, y- yes. <laughs> um, I will say the following things. So one thing I'll say is that, that this case, th- this is for, this book covers four interlocking um legal cases. Throughout the seven years that I covered them, most of them were in active litigation. While a case is in active litigation, it's perfectly normal for a company or somebody not to be able to talk to you about active litigation. So I went to the company repeatedly, um, you know, asking for comment. And sometimes I got it if it wasn't related to the case. Um, Sometimes there were really strange responses. For instance, I write about a former spokesman um, at the company at Range Resources, Matt Pizzarella, who, when I was writing a piece for the for the New York Times Magazine pretty early on in this process, so the, one of the suspected contaminants here that that some of the neighbors thought had sickened a dog um, was ethylene glycol. And glycols were actually found uh, in, in, at low levels in, in the water um, of Stacy and her neighbors. So they knew there were glycols involved um, and they thought ethylene glycol antifreeze, right, which is a common constituent used in frac fluid, might be part of the problem that was causing health problems. And I asked the spokesperson, I asked Matt Pizzarella about ethylene glycol, and his response to me, to the New York Times, was, we do not use ethylene glycol in fracking. And it just seemed such a strange response, because it was so, it was boldly inaccurate. And there would have been so many ways to answer that question without going on the record with something so inaccurate. Um, so that's that's an instance of how during the reporting things would go. Um, the company's response, you know, I would also say that the individuals with whom I did deal at the company were, to me, fair and civil. And and that's how I was with them. We had a very professional relationship. And as you'll read in the book, they did in the end take me out to the site. They did take me out to the to the contaminated site, and and you can read about that. Um, but their response to the book has been um, has been largely on their website. That's where I've seen it so far. Um, and at one point, the response was, you know, we haven't read this book in full yet, but it's loaded with inaccuracies, which kind of says it there. They hadn't read it, but it's loaded with inaccuracies. Um, so that's the complicated and complex relationship that I had with the company in the course of, of, of my reporting. In the book, you talked about the psyops and yeah. how Sharon was able to reveal that by actually recording at a conference. Um, yeah. How do you think that plays into the industry messaging when they just put out these sort of false statements? Or is that different than psyops? 
That's a good question. So, you know, PSYOPs being psychological operations, they're a classic counterinsurgency strategy. You know, for a long time, it was illegal to use counterins for just for the U.S. military to use counterinsurgency strategy inside the United States. So although the company has nothing to do with the U.S. military besides, you know, some former employees passing through, um, the the use of some of these techniques is troubling. Um, mm-hmm. Is the is staunch denial part of psychological operations? It certainly can be. Um, so is fear and intimidation. So are NDAs. You know, some of these perfectly legal responses um, that that stress vulnerable people um, are absolutely part of part of part of I just want to be careful and I want to be accurate because one of the things that I'm very careful about in general is that I am not an activist I am a journalist and the reason this book took seven years it's because it's extraordinarily careful and I don't speak about what I didn't report on very very carefully and what I can't substantiate so I don't want to suppose too much about what uh, some of those wider PSYOP strategies might be that I didn't report on specifically, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, where I have seen PSYOPs in operation, because I certainly have as as a journalist working in war zones, what that typically means is that's a lot of shaking hands in a community. That's a lot of identifying who the stakeholders are, um, who knows who are the key people to sway in order to get a buy-in on public opinion. Mm. It's although it's true and, and, you know, none of the, all of that reporting holds up. Sharon got the goods. That's all accurate. Um, it's also important to contextualize what PSYOPs actually is, if that makes sense. So we have a couple more questions here and, and you can actually leave questions in the chat as well. And I can bump them over to the Q and a area. So I'm going to bring in another question from, uh, let's see, from Travis, who says, your book really respects local culture. Do you think an anthropology project would make an effective impact in fighting fracking? And I asked just for some clarity of what what do you mean by an anthropology project? And Travis responded, doing statistics on health problems, industry and their pollution releases, history of area versus pollution, census counts, et cetera. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think data, I think one of the one of the issues here is the dearth of data um, on local populations. Right. And it's almost there's a parallel here between what we've seen uh, in journalism with the death of local news that when you don't have local people reporting or any kind of local bureau reaching out to what's going on, you're going to miss what's happening. Right. And Industry does thrive in lack of transparency. You know, when people don't know what's going on, they are able to um, cut corners, intentional or not, and often not intentional. So I would absolutely say that sounds amazing. I would also, I'm sure uh, Marty and Ryan would be able to point you toward resources, people who are already doing that, to name a couple off the top of my head. Um, I would say Abner Van Gosh uh, is doing great work um, out of Duke and Raina Ripple at the Southwestern uh, Pennsylvania Health Project is collecting data in a meaningful way. Um, And there are many, many others. There are many, many others. But yes, I think that that work is absolutely essential. A question from 
uh, from Barb would like an update from Eliza on current status of Test America and Microvac labs and their current accuracy and reporting results. For example, does Test America continue to provide access for their industry customers to delete and or change results? Also would like an update on DEP's labs reporting to homeowners that retesting their water wells. Does homeowner now receive all the results for metals, for example? Right. right. That is right. Since the publication of the book in May. Um, so the DEP, those are those are two great questions. So one of the things that comes to light in the book, but but had come to light on the ground before that, thanks to the Smith's careful work, is this question of the DP. What the DP was doing something that was strange, and what it what if if I complained that I thought my water was impacted by oil and gas, um, a water tester would come out and they would perform a series of tests and they would send those tests to the lab. And under the EPA approved protocol, they would be testing for 24 metals uh, that would, if if any of those metals were found, they, they those metals are associated with drilling, not definitive, but they are associated with drilling. Um, but when the test results came back, the test results only recorded eight of those 24 metals. So even if you had all 24 metals in your water, um, if you had some of them, some, some, you would only know about eight, right? So even if you had some of the 24, but not the eight they'd gone looking for that, that your test results came back with, they would miss them. I hope I'm being clear. It's, it's somewhat detailed reporting. Um, so, okay, so the Smiths discovered this, Kendra Smith discovered this in the course of her very careful work, that the DEP was suggesting people test for a series of, a suite of metals, but actually they themselves weren't reporting if it, people had those metals in their water. That, as a result of Kendra's pressure on the DEP, they began using a different protocol. They, they began using a, a more, a protocol that reported more accurately the results in people's water. Um, so that that happened before the book. That was not related to the book. Uh, on acrolein, so acrolein is a carcinogen and a biocide that was used up at the site um, to the tune of 819 pounds of something that if if you use more than, than 500 pounds, you have to call in um, basically first have first responders on site because it's so dangerous. And you know, I mean, people, the the company that was applying, the, this is when the pond, as I said, the pond went septic. It started to rot. It had the hydrogen sulfide overgrowth. So to kill that off and to kill off a, a scent that um, a, an oil and gas worker reported smelled like rotten beef jerky, um, the company had this, this biocide, this carcinogenic biocide applied to the pond. And like just for an, an image that I use in the book is you have men in hazmat suits supplying this stuff and 800 feet away, you have people in shorts and t-shirts, you know, grooming their horses for the county fair. Um, so that's just a little bit of context so that you can understand what the acrolein is and what the DEP reporting is. Um, I am not sure. So the, the program this is a lot of context, but it's impossible to understand the question without it. So Test America, um, one of the water testing companies, was allowing um, 
its clients, right? So they would come in and they were billed as an independent water tester, okay? So they would come in and they would test your water for potential contaminants related to oil and gas. As a part of the services they provided their client, their client would be the driller in this case, they allowed their client to go into their system and, and manipulate test results, okay? That was part, like, you couldn't actually change limits of tests inside. You couldn't change what was in the water, but you could remove things. So it was called Total Access, this program. I am not sure Total Access is still in use um, or how exactly it's being used today. Um, as the as the as that case continues to unfold in different aspects, uh, we may see some change, but I would not hold my breath. That's a bit in the weeds, but that that question required a bit of weeds answer. So I'm going to get into a couple other questions here. Um, we've got about eight or so questions left. Scrolling through real quick to make sure I can get one of these that was asked a while ago. There we go. Great. So Dr. Ray, is, I would like to ask Eliza what she thinks about the community rights approach to halting the harm. In Youngstown, we have been trying this approach and have been attacked by industry dark money PACs, and the Mahoning County Democratic Party, as well as the Ohio Democratic Party. Why have they spent well over half a million dollars to stop the citizens of Youngstown, Ohio, from banning fracking and injection wells within the city? This is not something that I've covered. So this is news to me. What is a community rights approach as you're describing it? Or I guess I'm not sure quite what the question is in this. This sounds like a fascinating and essential and troubling case. Um, yes. But I'm I'm not sure how I can comment in any meaningful way to it, if if that makes sense. Great. So yeah, Ray, if you're listening and you want to add add a comment back into that thread or jump in the chat, um, the community rights approach. The question is really about what you think about it. So great. I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, talk about the resource curse. This is something that, ah, that came yeah. up in the book. Yes. Hear more about. Okay. This. The resource curse. So this idea of, so, you know, at traveling and working as a journalist over 15 years in, in Africa and in Asia, Nigeria, um, Nigeria primarily is where I've seen this, I would say, is this question that, you know, since the 90s, liberal economists have been defining this, this sometimes we call it the paradox of plenty. Um, this paradigm of why is it that people who live on land, the richest in natural resources, tend to be among the poorest? And there are tons of different models for why why that is, you know, based on there are, you know, I'm generalizing because you could look at every resource and you could say, well, coltan is not gold, is not oil and gas. Um, in broad strokes, Part of the re part of what happens, we're looking at public corruption. Essentially, we're looking at you know get rich quick schemes that have profound impacts on um, education because nobody wants to go to school if you can go you know mine something and make a lot more money. Um, so there's a lack of investment in civil institutions. Um, what happens is that uh, leaders, you know, Chad, you could see Idris Debbie, if they're making more money on their Exxon contract than they are on the money they're getting from the U.S. government, who are they going to answer to? You know, um, but in but in broad strokes, again, that's often looked at in terms of tax base, that if if a leader is more um, 
gets more from a company or, or an industry than it's going to get in it, then he or she will get in taxes. Um, who are, who are they really, if you, if taxes no longer matter as much as tax revenue is no longer really driving people's accountability and resources are instead, what happens to public institutions? That's kind of how it breaks down. And, you know, I would say that we have seen this, um, we have seen this pattern in, we see, we, when we talk about it, we usually talk about it in the global South. We usually talk about it in um, Africa, Asia, Latin America. We don't usually look at it in, Amer- in America itself. Uh, but the truth is that certain dynamics of the resource curse um, have applied for a century in, in Appalachia and certain dynamics of the resource curse have fed what we see um, and what we experience as this growing disenfranchisement of of rural Americans because their land is ruined and they and boom and bust cycles affect unemployment and education. And, you know, when you have certain kinds of extractive industries come into your community, you're going to lose your your house. Uh, you'll lose your water. These are the kind of uh, both social and economic aspects um, of that come along with extractive industry that Appalachians, I often say that rural Americans have long borne the cost of urban Americans' energy appetites, and that has helped feed this disenfranchisement and rage we see among rural Americans that that we need to understand better. So there's been a few few comments in the chat that have come in just explaining community rights and the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, CELDEF. Nonprofit okay, law yes. office that gives grassroots activists legal advice to petition local governments to institute home rule approaches and establish yeah. a municipal charter. Yeah, do you want to comment on that, or is it more just context for? Not really. I, I mean, I think this wonderful person came with a comment himself about how frustrating it was that the that he, they that Youngstown was facing such opposition to banning fracking, yeah. but I didn't really hear a question in there. Right. So one one other question Carrie brings up is I think that she uh, she says in PA I think the oil and gas industry realized that the battle would be at the local level and so a major strategy is exploiting holes in the sunshine law and ignorance of the public process to push through industry friendly legislation and the question is did you attend any local township meetings to hear what residents and government officials had to say about zoning and setback regulations within any of the communities you visited. I want to recall, I mean, I have spent so many hours in township offices and with township supervisors, um, many of them who opposed. So when I talked a little bit about um, this, so yes, some community, many community meetings, whether I'm actually a township meeting, I'm, I'm trying to recall whether I was specifically, I just don't want to report that inaccurately. But what I will report is um, just talk a little bit about what happened. So with Act 13, so townships banded together, you know, because we know that Pennsylvania has such a strong, yes, the corporations understood the fight would be at the local level. Um, Pennsylvania, they also understood that because Pennsylvania has such strong local government, right? We have over 2,500 municipalities that are, you know, strong enough to fight back against extractive industries and others if they if they operate right so um what happened in the lead up to act 13 which may be familiar to people and may not be uh governor corbett 
of Pennsylvania was proposed making massive changes to the Oil and Gas Act that would essentially bulletproof companies against local government's regulation. And it would be up to the state to to decide with the drillers where they could drill and where they couldn't. Critics called this drill anywhere. There were other aspects of it. Um, that critics called, for for instance, the physician gag rule that was particularly troubling. That meant that if a physician treated somebody who was sick from potential exposure to chemicals related to oil and gas, the physician could find out from the company what his patient had been exposed to or her patient. But the physician would have to not report to to the patient or to any other doctor what those chemicals were. So there were aspects of this law that that were exactly what was the question from Carrie? I think so. That were exactly what um, exactly what you're talking about. Erosion of of basically public power, you know, um, and. What happened is that, again, this fight was so exciting in part because it didn't fall along ideological lines. You had conservative Republicans who were land developers and and homeowners who knew that if these companies came next door to their house, uh, their property values would go down um, and the tax, you know, the communities that relied on tax revenue would be gutted if people moved away. so that was really an and then Act 13 went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. And that's what I was talking about, that part of the the townships won. The townships were able to push back and say, no, we have the right to say where people can drill and cannot drill. And and we have the right as citizens of Pennsylvania to clean air and clean and pure water. And that was, a, again, a conservative Republican chief justice who um, who wrote the opinion in that case. So I guess the, that answers the question of township supervisors and, yeah, community action. I also want to be aware of the time. It's 4.51. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we're going to start wrapping up. And we have a few more questions. Um, one that's been sitting here for a little while, Walt, is asking, if someone is affected by oil and gas activity, how do you find a lawyer who will actually honestly represent that person's interests? What a fantastic question. What a fantastic question. I mean, I have seen so many lawyers do such a poor job at this point. And to be really honest, you know, the skills involved. What's tricky is that a lot of what one has to do in order to substantiate that exposure has to do with work that most lawyers don't know how to do, right? Because it involves, you know, toxicology. And so I would suggest... I'm so afraid to overload John Kendra Smith's inboxes. (laughs) I mean, they are extraordinary lawyers and they do represent quite a few people who have, um, who have cases where they feel that they've been injured by industry. Um, And other lawyers, I would say, who have any kind of track record, first of all, local, you know, I mean, national lawyers or even I don't want to I don't want to say, you know, clinics, legal clinics at universities. These guys, they don't have the kind of local knowledge that sometimes you need. Like, for instance, in Act 13, the case I was just talking about, what really ended up making the case is zoning, which to you guys may be familiar that in Pennsylvania, you know, there are incredibly strong zoning regulations that allows uh, communities, townships to protect their citizens 
health and they have a responsibility. It's a police power. They have a responsibility to zone such that um, people are protected. It, you know, you have a residential, you have a commercial, you have an industrial area. Uh, you really need to know local law uh, pretty profoundly. And again, that outsider insider status, I think, I think going local is often a smart way to go. In Pennsylvania, I don't think the Smiths would mind my saying, I've certainly written about them at length, that, um, that their office is, is a hub for people who are, are concerned about what's happening to them, and, and they may have other references as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And also, Christine commented in that question that the Fair Shake Legal Services has helped more than one organic farmer in Ohio affected by OM gas activity. Right. So it's worth mentioning too. And so you mentioned earlier in the in the webinar that you're now starting to focus on a bit on pipelines. And so there was a yeah. couple comments that came through, not a question, but a note. Um, Barb says, sure. delighted that you will focus on pipelines. I'd love to introduce you to some amazing volunteer anti-pipeline activists, including a retired emergency room doctor and a woman who's done fantastic work documenting environmental justice violations. And so, you know, we'll help connect you uh, with Wonderful. Barb, of course. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And there's some, um, let's see, there there aren't any other like specific questions about pipelines, but, you know, as we start to wrap up, I wanted to just put out there too that anybody that's listening, that's involved with Halt the Harm Network, that of course there was a question about, you know, do you have to, to join with that green button? And um, the answer mm-hmm. to that is that yeah, if, if you join the network, you'll keep hearing about these types of conversations. You'll you'll be able to keep connecting. And, you know, Eliza, I know that the network for you is a way that you can connect with some people as well. People in the network yeah. can connect with you and, and your work. Yeah, um, and also yeah, your, yeah, yeah. your book events that are coming up. What's yeah. the range of, of your book events? And, you know, what's the timeline look like for you and with some of so your pipelines? could I say, yeah, why don't I, instead of announcing them now, because I don't have them in front yeah. of me, I mean, I could open a file, but could we do something where we could do a follow-up to this call that has the, I have a postcard that's got all my fall events on it, except for one that um, we're just adding now in October, hopefully in Exton, uh, Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. so if we, maybe as part of the follow-up to this call, you guys could send out to the network totally. the, the fall four postcard, would that be okay? Absolutely. And I know like because the network has quite a number of supporters and one of the ways that we've been able to offer support to some grassroots campaigns as well is to help elevate the work that they're doing and spread the word. And so, you know, we'd love to be able to use your book events as well as a way to reach out to to more people and just say, hey, you know, check out this event. That would be awesome. Um, So can you share a little bit about your upcoming or current work with Pipelines as we start to wrap up here? I can a little bit, but, you know, as a hard-hitting journalist, I can only say a little bit. Um, Obviously, you know, this comes out of the the touring that I've already done, and what I I know is facing many, the Pennsylvanians that I know, and certainly this is true, you know, all the way down to the bio, it's not just Pennsylvania, but the latest fight isn't just well sites, it is the infrastructure, often redundant, often problematic that's going in to get that gas to market. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I am looking at the human cost once again, um, much as I have related. And I I am better with specific stories. So I'm really looking at people 
who have either, you know, survived encounters with with you know challenges around the the pipeline, or people who um, you know have some relation to the pipeline in general and want to talk to me about what their experience has been. Mm-hmm. Great. Is there anything else that you want to talk about as we wrap up today? No, I just really want to say thank you. You know, I mean, my for me doing this today, what I've realized already is that the my favorite times of sharing this book are really with people who live in frontline communities, um, who've experienced the, who've experienced these things and have more sophisticated understandings, not of the processes themselves. Um, but of the longer dynamics and of how um, engagement works on a deep level. And I just want to thank you guys for taking the time. First, I want to thank you, Ryan and Marty, for setting this up. But I also want to thank the people on the call for taking the time to do it. Well, thank you so much. It's really, it's been really great to talk with you. And it's been really, there we are, side by side. Yeah, it's been really, it's been really fun to, to connect with you. And thank you so much for coming on one of our webinars in the series. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. And so in a kind of closing announcement, that green button there is how you can get involved in the network. And if you don't have a profile, you can set one up. And if you do, you can log in, reset your password, and update your profile with the work that you're doing. Um, The thing I'll say about the network is that it's really basic. The directory is Um, based around zip codes. So you don't have to share any personal information, but it helps us connect with each other based on location, but also the things that we're interested in and the skills that we might be able to lend to the network. So you can actually find people who are working on economic impacts or who are interested in. in, um, So there's ways that you can find other people within Halt the Harm Network to sort of support your work. And I think the final thing is that all the services that you'll see right on the homepage of healtheharm.net are all things that people in the network have offered. So we're, we like to talk about Halt the Harm Network kind of like a radio station that's broadcasting the work that our network is doing. We're not an organization that has any other agenda than to provide that platform for you and for everybody who's watching and who's listening. So please check out healttheharm.net. And for those of you that are new that signed up for this webinar, I'll follow up with you via email. Again, my name's Ryan, and I'll be emailing you to just tell you a little bit more about what we're doing with the network and how you can get involved. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Eliza. And we'll we'll send out information about your book events to everybody, and we'll continue to... to... Thanks a lot, Ryan. Great. Have a fantastic Bye-bye. day, everybody. We're ending right on time at 5 o'clock p.m. <laughs> Take care. And that wraps up today's episode of Halt the Harm podcast. I hope you enjoyed that replay of the webinar with Eliza Griswold, the author of Amity and Prosperity. You can find out more about her work and links to her other books. Go to amityandprosperity.com or go to haltthaharm.net slash podcast and check out the show notes for this episode with all the links to where you can buy her books and find out more about her work as a journalist. This podcast is a project of healttheharm.net, a website and resource that connects you with leaders, activists, researchers, economists, legal experts, and funders to protect your community from oil and gas industry. Health the Harm is a network of leaders who are taking action, sharing resources and information, and supporting each other's campaigns. Find out more at healttheharm.net. The soundtrack for Health the Harm podcast 
is One of These Days by Elan Jewell from her album Sea of Tears. This is recorded, produced, and published by myself, Ryan Clover, in the studios of WRFI, Watkins Glen, Ithaca, 